Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. It was, such a, it was such an interesting read. I um, met Jeff at uh, Associated Writing Programs, AWP. We were on a panel together on the shape of the novel. And I remember other people were on the, that panel too and just talked about their book, their own books. But Jeff taught, talked about literature and whatever we talked about, he was there, you know, he could go. And uh, so I was just waiting to see what he wrote and to, to see this book. It's both a page turner, but it's, the form is very interesting. Uh, it's told in very short sections. So uh, if somebody reads a lot, they start to see, you know, kind of the literary base note going on. But if they're not particularly literary, they just go, wow, cool, short sections, moves along, this is really <laughs> rock and roll, it's great, it's a three minute song. Um, so uh, it can be read, it's, it's multi-leveled that way. You can read it you know, with a literary eye or you can just read it as a fast moving rock and roll novel. Um, but it is a surreal novel and um, or is it? Do you, did you sit down, did you have a feel for kind of the level of reality? I mean, it was more surreal when I started it, unfortunately. Like my notes for this book go back over 10 years. And um, the first image that came to me was this idea, it was this image of someone in a rock club, in a small rock club, being shot on stage. And so 12 years ago, that really did seem like a very surreal image. You know, this is well before the Bataclan shooting and, um, and this sort of idea of this sort of epidemic of shootings um, that seemed unstoppable also felt more surreal. And in some ways it feels like reality's caught up to the book in some very unsettling ways that were never my intention. Um, but it is surreal in that there is sort of like a dream logic operating with how with sort of within the book that there's definitely um, there's definitely a lot of reality to the book, but there's also a fair amount of dreaminess and a little bit of hallucinatoriness that's, that's floating through it as well, and that's certainly intentional. Um, it felt right to tell this sort of heightened story with a slightly heightened level of sort of dream logic guiding the characters and guiding the story that hopefully makes sense while you read it, but maybe when you look back on it, you're like, Wait, how did we get to this point exactly? Mm -hmm. Well, I think, isn't that why we, we like rock and roll? Especially, you know, if, as a young fan. Um, because it, you leave the world, you enter a heightened world, you enter a mythic world. You know, even maybe genres of rock you might not like particularly um, uh, have a very mythic quality to them. And people want, especially the importance of rock in a smaller kind of Rust Belt town or suburb or places where you feel, uh, you, the fans often feel like the only place they're 
that there's any meaning is in those clubs, and they'll spend hours. And you describe that so well. You know, you spend hours getting your nail polishing, getting your eye makeup, getting the clothes right. Um, uh, and it feels like so much is sort of writing on like these performances that like very few, you know, that's no one ever outside the town is going to know about. Right. You know. Yeah, there's so much writing on them, and so there there comes the question of. Is there a pattern to the kinds of bands that get shot? Are they uh, are they as good as their mythology? Well, I mean, one of the I mean, the throughout the book, um, as you'll see, there characters have different theories on why the shootings are taking place, and one of the one of the theories that's floating around from the character Zenny, in fact, is that it's. It's these bands that are really mediocre, that aren't very good, that there's something about um, almost sort of a culling of the herd that's happening um, with this, that there become, she says at one point that it's, uh, everyone's in a band and the most interesting thing you could do these days would be to not be in a band or to break up your band. Um, and so I think part of that's a reaction to sort of like the mediocrity that she sees, but I think part of it's also a reaction to the fact there's such a sort of information overload that we're saturated in, and it's not just like small-time music scenes. It's, it's all around us. There's, you know, there's a lot of interesting art that's made out there, a lot of interesting music. I mean, the book isn't, argu the book isn't making the argument that it's like, music used to be better back then, you know? It's not the case. Like, there's, there's always really interesting music being made, and there's certainly still a lot of interesting music being made now. But I think we're in a situation where the interesting music that's being made now doesn't have the possibility of meaning as much as it used to mean. Uh, it doesn't have the possibility of sort of moving the cultural needle anymore. And there's a sort of cultural spark that's missing, not just for musicians, but for fans, that helps to sort of create some identity and a sense of community around certain bands and certain musicians. And when there isn't sort of a critical mass or even sort of a listening mass around something like that, like that, that, that becomes missing. And um, so another theory that's floating through the book is the killers are in some weird way trying to get back to some sort of year zero in some sort of really horrific way, in some less, less than a punk rock way, more of a Khmer Rouge way. Um, but I mean, there's a, like, there, but there's a there are a bunch of different theories as to why, but I, I I do think that you know one of the things that's definitely is sort of inescapable is how do you how do you make art that means something in a culture where it's really hard to tell the signal from the noise, and how do you give stakes to your art when it feels like no one's listening and no one's paying attention? Like how do you create those stakes for yourself when you're a musician and it's hard to get people to get together to rehearse more than once a week because there's no chance you're going to make any money at it. Yeah, it's like the, the relationship between art and commerce comes up uh, in the novel. Yeah, I mean, in rock and roll, weirdly, like a lot of great art in rock and roll has come out of money. It's come out of the fact that there's money involved, you know? I mean, John Lennon and Paul McCartney getting together to say, like, we're going to write a swimming pool today. We're going to write a car. We're going to, you know, uh, that in some ways, like, having, like, the, the carrot of money dangled in front of people um, is has been really beneficial for art. And the fact that even, you know, really strange avant-garde groups could like tour Europe and make money, you know, allowed them to stay together 
and make their wonderful, strange, you know, defiantly sort of uncommercial music because there was still some money in it. Yeah, it's a paradox. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is like that's like the weird paradox of like popular music, I think, is that sometimes when there was money involved, it was actually beneficial. Yeah, I, uh, let's see. I mean, don't we always turn to art for that um, kind of heightened quality, that mythic quality that our lives are just, I don't want to say they're, I mean, you know, you experience it as a, an increasing lack of meaning um, that maybe it's, you know, the fragmentation of groups. I mean, the, it's the essence of rock and roll that it's a group, right? It's the band. We're, we are a small group of people who have a vision and we, we, um, we have a often have a style and we have, um, you know, we create our world and the fans join that and it adds a whole dimension to life. And without, uh, I can't think of another form that has such a, mis uh, 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 I was thinking of um, Mary Gateskill's novel, Veronica, which uh, she won the National Book Award uh, several years ago for this book. And music has a lot to do with it because it's thinking about the 60s and saying that we saw the music as, we saw the surface of the music and then there was a door that you could walk in and be part of that heighten more glamorous more exciting world and i see the fans you can do that in rock and roll uh, there's very few other art forms that are quite that you do it with groups of people like that yeah i mean it's it's about i mean i think so much of like the appeal of rock is this idea of self-transformation um and that even liking different types of music can be like a different way of transforming yourself, of like identifying yourself as liking this sort of this sort of thing. I mean, I, I read a there's a really interesting uh, music memoir that came out a couple of years ago by uh, Vivian Albertine. Any of you all know that book? Um, she was the guitar player for the Slits, and she was sort of a, a, around sort of a ground zero of punk in the UK in the 70s, and has all these sort of amazing stories to tell about. Um, just about what was happening then. Like she was, she was in Sid Vicious's first band and she was dating Mick Jones from The Clash and she learned how to play guitar from Keith Levine from PIL and all these other things. But what's interesting is she says she was like 14 and 15 and she's like, I was interested in where the action was. Like that's what I was interested in. And she said where the action was back then was music. And that's why I got involved. And she said if I was 14 or 15 now, I wouldn't be involved in music. Hmm. What would she be doing? Well, she said she wasn't sure. She said she thought, we, her answers she gave were very unsatisfying, I thought. She was like, medicine was one. At 14? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I was like, what? <laughs> That's not true. Um, and another one was science, which I don't know, sounds good, but I don't, I don't know. It didn't, neither of her answers like made any sense to me. Uh, but I understood, I mean, I understood like the impulse that she was talking about. And she, she has a daughter who's like, 16 and she's like she's sort of interested in music but it's not sort of it's neither sort of the life raft it was for her and it's also not the sort of tool of transformation and this sort of sense of like it's the action to get in on it's uh i can remember 
going down the strip and seeing the kids sitting on the wall outside of uh, the whiskey because they were too young to get in. And actually, the coolest people at that concert were the people sitting on the wall. You know, it just had, it, the fans, I mean, if it's not a world, if it's not exciting, even the proximity of that doorway, um, it's, it's like you, it isn't rock and roll anymore. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in some ways, I mean, I think in some ways the book is also about, like, what do you do with a, with an art form after it sort of outlives its existence, outlives its usefulness in a certain way. Um, well, let's talk about literature, because it's not just a rock and roll novel, it is also a novel. Uh, yes. You know, so the comment, or how do your comments on rock and roll um, reflect on your ideas about f where fiction's at? I mean, weirdly, I feel like, I feel like, I feel like the internet has like totally, has done something really terrible to music. It's really swallowed it up and sort of stripped away a lot of um, sort of the lore around it. And partly that's because like songs are three minutes, it only takes three minutes to listen to a song. Um, and it's starting to do that to films, but films is like 90 minutes, so it's a little bit longer. I feel like weirdly, like books have been in this way, like slightly impervious to the internet because it just takes a damn long to read a book. Um, and weirdly, it's helped, the internet has sort of helped connect people to like find sort of stranger books. I mean, the sort of caveat to all this is maybe the internet has destroyed people's attention span, so like not many people read anymore. <laughs> um, but I do feel I do feel like in some ways like literature is somehow is it, it is somewhat healthier than music in terms of all this but I think there is still the same issue of just there's so there's so much out there in terms of like how much is published every year and how many really good books are published every year and how hard it is for a lot of them to find their audience um is a is a tough is a tough thing, but I think that too the literature is because of the internet because of the sheer amount of stuff that people are exposed to uh, on an average evening of of web surfing. I think it's been helpful to break down some of the boundary the genre boundaries. Yeah. People are not as tough, you know. Oh, that's poetry. Or, oh, that's science fiction. It's like no, it's. You know, I can read stuff, a novel, and I mean, younger people can read a novel in verse and don't find it upsetting. Or they can read a novel that f in form seems, a, it seems a little bit um, unconventional to a conventional reader. But to a younger reader, it's just like, oh, cool, little short, short pieces, you know, I can go with that. Oh, this is happening. Is that the same guy as this? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Let's just see what happens. Uh, where um, a reader from, say, the 1940s might just not have wrapped their head around this. I think the there's a um, the label experimental fiction. It used to be anything that wasn't, um, you know, conventional narrative, um, realist fiction was put in this experimental category. And I think that's been exploded. Uh, people realize, oh, that's not an experiment, that's a novel, you know? Um, they're not as, 
as put off by the unusual. Yeah, I think that's true. I think like readers have become a lot more adventurous. I think it's in some cases like the major publishing houses that are slow to understand some of this. Um, I think there's starting to be gaps in that. But I mean, I was, when my first novel, Mira Corpora, came out, it was called, you know, super experimental and like, you know, people are going to have a really hard time understanding this. And, you know, most of the emails I got about that book from readers were from like 18, 19 year old and 20 year olds who like read it in two nights and found it just like this immersive, interesting, propulsive story and weren't sort of like concerned about the formal qualities of this, that, or the other. Um, and it was really heartening that like, I felt like, okay, like there are, there, there are plenty of readers out there who engage with this. Um, and it's not, about, it's not about it being some rarefied thing. I mean, there's a lot of sort of odd moves and destroy all monsters, including sort of the A side and the B side. Um, and there's even sort of the way time works in the novel. There's cross-cutting in it that's almost like sort of filmic. But like those things are there structurally not to sort of show off some different technique, but they're there to actually make the story more immersive and more propulsive and more sort of... Um, to, to sort of hook you in deeper. You know, they're there, they're there because like they have to be there to sort of serve part of what that's doing. So how did you get the publisher to do this? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, believe me, 10 years ago, they would have said no. Well, there are a lot of publishers who would have just said no too. I mean, I was really, I was really lucky. I mean, interestingly enough, like when the book was sold, the publisher had just read the A-side and they didn't even know the B-side was around. And I was like, well, there's this extra, there's this other side. And I had been writing this B-side. I'd sort of like, once I had finished the book, I sort of became haunted by the idea of the book as sort of a, a single. And I started thinking of it as like an A-side. And I started to think, well, then what is the B-side? And I had some friends who were like, you know, this book is hard enough to sell already. Like, what are you, you're making it twice as hard to sell. You're crazy. I just couldn't shake the idea. And when I was writing it, I thought, well, maybe it's like a, a standalone thing that could be published separately. Maybe someone else will publish it and they'll sort of speak to each other. But after I had finished the B-side, I really realized that it needed to be under the same covers. And um, initially the publisher was like, oh, well, we, we can publish them just sort of one after the other. And I'm like, no, no, it has to, you have to flip the book because they're not, it's not part one and part two, which you'll see when you read it. Like it's really, the B-side is really sort of like an alternate history of the A-side. And you might see some of the same events, but they're gonna turn out differently. And you might see some of the same characters, but their genders might be different. Some characters might meet different fates. You'll see, there'll be echoes throughout the book, but the echoes are gonna lead to different places. And so I really wanted that sort of mental shift that you have to do when you turn the book over. And so I was really lucky that the publisher got this and understood it. it took them a little while to wrap their head around it because like they bought one book and like they got something much stranger um i think much better too it, it is it's really interesting because it's a uh, it's a really exciting story just a plain old murder mystery if you want to go that way um it's a really exciting story with some really haunting uh elements to it it has kind of a little bit of a horror side to it shall I say, and then you flip it, it's like... Good Halloween reading. It's not an opposite story. It's like a counter-narrative. So it's not like, actually, the way I see it is blah, 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 but 
everything is told in a somewhat different way. Um, yeah, no, I mean, even even like the point of view is like yeah. slightly, is tweaked and slightly different. Yeah. And you're partly getting information. There are partly some scenes that are mentioned in the A-side but aren't dramatized, that are dramatized in here. Um, but there are also like some really major scenes that aren't in the A-side that are that are shown in yeah. the B-side and, and in very different ways, and the characters interacting in very different ways. Yeah, didn't you say somewhere that, that the B-side is the band's secret, is gonna be on the B-side? Yeah, yeah, that the characters talk about, like, what would you, you know, what do you prefer, A-sides or B-sides? And one of the characters says, uh, one of the musicians says, I'm always trying to write A-sides, but I actually prefer B-sides. And other character says something like that's I, I always I like B-sides too because where the bands tend to hide their secrets their obsessions Although there might be more secrets hidden on the A side of this uh, this particular book actually oh that's interesting yeah and then let's see I, ha I actually prepared one or two questions um, There have been, um, there are a number of books where we get twice told stories. Uh, who, uh, were, were they affecting you or did, it, did the idea of having that second, uh, the B side just come out of a need to address some of these hidden or uh, uh, unopened boxes of story? I mean, it partly came out of that. I mean, I probably, I don't know that I was I wasn't sort of working off of models for this, but I'm always thinking about um, this great trilogy of novels by Agoda Kristoff, this Hungarian writer. It's called The Book of Lies. And it's three novels, uh, The Notebook, The Proof, and the third book in the volume is called The Third Lie. It's th the best title ever for like a third volume in your trilogy. Um, and it's an amazing set of books because each novel rewrites and recontextualizes the previous book. And so each one forces you to sort of rethink what you thought you knew about that. And that book has really haunted me and continues oh. to really haunt me. It's, I highly recommend it. Grove puts out a compendium of all three books. They're really short. I mean, it's like 600 pages for all three books, 500 pages. Anyway, um, and so I was really interested in that. I was really interested in the idea of a side that doesn't just, that addresses, the B-side addresses the A-side, but it also erases and rewrites and recontextualizes the A-side. That really forces you to think of the A-side in a completely different way, and the characters, and the connections, and even a lot of the images that you've seen in the A-side are completely sort of wrenched into a different shape. And so her book was like a really, was really powerful for me, and it still, it still is. I still think about that book a lot and how she did it. Probably also somewhere in the back of my mind, there's the Dennis, Dennis Cooper's last novel, The Marbled Swarm, sort of each chapter. I almost think of it as like each chapter sort of, if each chapter is like a hand of solitaire, it's like each chapter then reshuffles the deck oh, wow. and deals itself a new set of cards. And it's the same characters and situations and all that, but somehow it's a different configuration. In each chapter, you're sort of like, whoa, what, you know, how exactly, where exactly am I? And I love that sort of sense of disorientation. I'm not doing something quite that um, 
radical as he was chapter by chapter, but it's something I always yeah, did really Did you read loved. I, the Divine by Rabbi Alamedine? Oh, no, no, that's on my list to read. Where he retells the first chapter of a novel over and over, trying to get it, trying to start it right. And it's just in different styles. He begins this book again and again. It is a brilliant. Oh wow! It is a brilliant book. That sounds very sort you of Calvino-ish too. Uh, yeah, when we're in Jeff Jackson ter territory, <laughs> then we start looking at some interesting novels, the way they're put together. Yeah. Let's see. We talked about uh, over uh, a, an early dinner. We talked about what did you? What have you stolen from other books? Because writers, of course, try not to steal. You know, it's up to us to to create things freshly for um, uh, for the reader and be very honest about it being fresh always. But we always steal from the people we love because we can't resist. It's so wonderful, and so we talked about that. Uh, so tell us about your your one borrowing. Um. Well, maybe more than one, but um, <laughs> there, I was, there's, I was really interested, there's this um, Nabokov, Nabokov, I always Nabokov. Okay, Nabokov? Yeah. Anyway, novella called Transparent Things uh, that I was really interested in. It's not like one of his greatest work, but it's a really fascinating one. Um, and it's narrated by, it's narrated from Beyond the Grave. And there are definitely some elements in Destroy All Monsters that's in conversation uh, with that book. Um, some sections that don't, that it's hard to tell, that, that don't maybe seem like they're being narrated, but there's a narrated embedded in there. And there's sort of the, the last line of transparent things when um, the character uh, that's being described, this character, Hugh Person is his name. He dies in this fire. And as he's dying, there's described sort of the mental maneuver that happens between sort of life and death. And the narrator welcomes him to the other side by saying, talking about this mental maneuver that makes, he says, easy, you know, does it, son. And so you might hear some echoes of that somewhere in the Look book. For that. Well, let's see. I... I um left my marked up coffee at dinner, but um, hopefully it's not walked we, away. Yeah, no, it'll still be there. I, I, I'm picturing it yellow on a yellow table. Um, what does it mean for a novel to be absolutely modern? I mean, this I mean when I think about, I mean, I guess when I think about like a novel, like I think about like, like a novel should be novel. A novel should feel, to me, should feel like it's doing something new. Um, I feel like that's, I feel like that's really important. That if you're going to take your time, like not to be watching serialized TV, which is really good, like you should be like reading something that's going to give you something that only fiction can give you. And that should that comes in terms of the form as well as the voice or any number of other functions. But I mean, there's so so many things competing for our attention these days that I really feel like fiction has to do something really special. And the book should feel like something you, 
it feels fresh. It feels like something you haven't read before, maybe even if it is. I mean, I think that's, that's sort of the trick of rock and roll, too, is like it's not that it's necessarily new, but it sounds like it's new. Um, and I think a novel should feel novel. It should. It should, you know. It's, um, and we're always in conversation with what we're reading, you know, rather than trying to replicate it. Uh, people are writing, you know, sequels to books or prequels to books that were written 100 years ago, 200 years ago, and suddenly we have it from a different character's point of view, or we're, uh, we're retelling it with the concerns of the present. Uh, so, in a way, this issue of authenticity, which comes up in your book a lot, um, it's if you're having, you know, if you're, are you trying to imitate, uh, say, Moby Dick or whatever book you're in conversation with? Are you trying to imitate that or are you in conversation with it? Because somebody, I had a long talk with somebody who, who uh, was arguing that, uh, you know, that's, um, you're, you're, it's imitation. We don't need it, you know. Yeah. Um, whereas art is, it's a freeway that's already in motion. You know, you get on the freeway, and uh, you join the conversation. There's a I was been uh, there's a book of sculptures uh, that came out very recently by this guy Jack Whitten, this painter, and uh, this is his body of work he apparently been doing his entire life and hadn't shown until just recently. He just passed away. It's like 40 years life work, and I've been. It's a fascinating book. I've been reading a lot of interviews with him recently. I've sort of become a little obsessed with Jack Whitten. And he talks about, it was when he was a young painter, it was really important for him. Um, I forget, I think it was de Kooning told him, when you get in the studio, all the, the history of art is behind you. You know, that you're, you're not alone in the studio, that there's all, this, there's all this you can be drawing from. And I feel like that's true when you're writing, and sometimes that feels like a crushing weight. And other times it feels like, a, you know, like wind in your sails. Um, but you are, I mean, hopefully the work you're doing is sort of part of that, is part of that stream, part of that conversation. I mean, one of the things we were talking about at AWP that I thought was really great, and one of the things you were pointing out is just all the sort of different types of structures a novel can have. And then I think that there's so, one of the sort of, failures of imagination of sort of contemporary American realist fiction is that there's so many forms that are unused. There's so many forms from around the world that are really exciting that haven't been, that still feel very fresh, that haven't sort of been engaged with. Um, and it's sort of, it's a, it's a shame that that doesn't, you know, happen more often. That isn't seen as sort of like, instead of a strange thing to be avoided, but like an opportunity to lean into. Are you thinking of something particular? In terms of like problematic books? Or no, of forms <laughs> that have, you know, that have languished that we could, you know, why, why aren't we trying to do that? Uh, I mean... Not to put you on the spot or anything. Well, I mean, you were talking, I mean, one of the things you were talking about was, um, was under the volcano and sort of the idea of, I mean, just different ways to like arrange the novel. One of them is sort of like an obsessive sort of patterning, you know, that it doesn't have, something doesn't have to be plot driven. There's an obsessive patterning of images and phrases that keep sort of like that, this is constellation of patterns is what holds the novel together. 
Um, this is great Julio Cortazar book, 62, a model kit that is, um, it's narrated by multiple people at the same time. And it moves through time and space in this really crazy way. It takes a little while to like figure out like, get into like the mindset of the novel, but once you do, it's incredible. And it's this idea of multiple narrators like really works in a really interesting way and sort of the way he collapses time and space while still telling this story that takes place over like a month is, is really, it's just fascinating. So I mean, it's, they're like, you know, something like Life, a user's manual, the Perec, you know, like, it, you know, it can be sort of like, you can sort of find a new way to do like the Arabian Nights, you know, style of storytelling, but like, arrange it in a way that feels very yeah, modern. This is a crazy novel where th the whole novel is this guy describing the contents of the rooms of a Parisian apartment house. It's, oh, but and it's, it's done like in the night's gambit. So it's up one over two or down one over two. And you get everything about the about those people, about the politics. Everybody still remembers who was a collaborator in World War II and what their apartment looks like. And the poor people live up near the ceiling, and the wealthy people live on the the, the main, the first floor, the uh, the one right up, up from the street, the premier etage, um, and the. Uh, uh, I remember starting, it was 500 pages. I started reading, I was like, what, why am I reading this again? But it's full of games. Like he, he has to have these 20 things in the, in the room. He can't use this, he can't use this. This is the guy who wrote a whole novel without using the, the uh, letter E. e. Um, and managed to do it. Um, so the games of those you know, writers so yeah. Not, yeah, I mean, there's some wild, and there's some wild stories in that book. I mean, there is some, yeah. like, a friend of mine says that, like, Antiques Roadshow is, like, Perec porn, because ah! <laughs> it's like, the description <laughs> of all the, but I mean, they're, they're, like, that book is full of, like, things that are somewhat more sort of intellectual, but also, like, some really wild, like, swashbuckling, funny tales in there, too. Yeah. I mean, there's just a lot of different sort of containers for the novel that just aren't, you know, aren't typically used that I think like readers would be like fascinated to come in contact with. Right. Okay. So should we open this? Yeah, up? do people have questions? Yeah, don't be shy. Yeah. Yeah, no I, no, I think that's true. I mean, there are still, like, I mean, I think there's this need for people to sort of create this stuff. I mean, it's interesting, though, there's, like, Kendrick Lamar was complaining before he won the Pulitzer about how quickly his album Damn disappeared and how it didn't have, like, a moment. And I was like, you know, if Kendrick Lamar's complaining that he doesn't have, like, enough sort of cultural clout, like, what chance do, like, so many, like, younger artists have? 
Yeah, I mean, like, I remember, like, you know, people talk about, oh, the song of the summer. Well, the song of the summer lasts, like, a week now, you know? And so I still think you're right that the, those things are still happening. It is, it probably has moved to hip-hop, which is uh, for younger people, for sure. Um, but there is still this sort of sense of, like, of this accelerated pace and how that sort of even eating up those, I mean, I wonder how long, like, how long do, like, the Xanax, Xanax rap thing last, you know? Does that have many legs like six months from now? Do you think it's because they eat up the uh, things? There's such a short gap between the appearance of something really creative and the commercialization of it. Well, it's such a short gap. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, sure. So your concert was really crazy. Uh, although I just it sounds nuts in a really good way. But um, at the same time, you kind of see the tattoos and everything. And I was wondering, well, how far, how long ago did you write the book? And where do you have the dialogue with that? Or what's your I mean, it was, I mean, the dialogue, I mean, this has always been a violent country. And that's always been on my mind. So in that sense, like, there is a dialogue with that. But it wasn't sort of... So for instance, when I, when I first had drafted the sort of, some of the scenes of the killings, um, I showed them to some friends and the comment, this was pre-Sandy Hook, and the comments I got from friends was like, this is unrealistic that there could be this many killings and that there wouldn't be a public outcry and the government wouldn't stop to intervene. And I was like, well, I'm, trying, I'm not trying to write a realist book, so that's fine. But, you know, like, the sad thing is, is, like, this has become something, yeah, has, has become something that I never expected. And sort of the, fa the, the rate at which this has changed, um, I mean, I finished this book. It took, a long, it took a while to sell it. It took a while to edit it and get it published. Um, and so even post, I mean, just the way attitudes have been changing, even just post the, the Florida shooting earlier this year, has been happening so fast that it's definitely sort of recontextualizing the book um, a little bit beyond sort of what, what I had intended, you know? Um, and that's been weird for me as an author to put something, you know, to be putting something out there that feels like it's more in dialogue, you know, more, like intentionally I'm in dialogue with this thing that I wasn't actually really intending to be in this sort of close dialogue with. Um, so that's been weird, and I don't know. I mean, the book also has, I mean, the book has a real sort of current event feel. One of the nice things, um, there's a, a, Don DeLillo read it, and one of the things he said about it was, he was very complimentary, is that it read to him like an old folk tale. And it was really nice that it had sort of both, and that's something I'm definitely going for, that it has this sort of ritualistic, older feel to it that hopefully helps it sort of live beyond this moment, while it is definitely sort of more of this moment that I intended it to be originally? Does that answer that? Yeah, because you never know the context that a book is gonna come out. History uh, feels like it's just moving so fast in general, like who knows what crazy batshit thing is gonna like be happening next week that we're all gonna be like clutching our heads over. 
um, that may, you know, that may really radically rewrite the context that some book is read in and perceived as, or some book that may seem to be like really of interest on sort of the cutting edge and is bought and like when it's published a year later, like everyone's moved on to something else. So it's, yeah, it, in that sense, like literature is like a very poor way to sort of keep up with the zeitgeist. But you often, the zeitgeist is moving you. You know, you don't even know that, I mean, you certainly pick up on the, there's always been a kind of a, a violent substrate in rock and roll. Mm -hmm. You know, everybody who's been to a concert and there's an energy in the air and it's just like you make sure, like, where are the exits? <laughs> I mean, seriously, you do. Or you might, you know, give up your seat and move a little further back, you know? That there is, there has been, you know, a lot of, a feel of violence, uh, depending on the band, of course. And, and it, um, yeah, and it goes back. I mean, the book is one of the A side, there are dedications for each side, and the A side is dedicated to the singer Johnny Ace, who is a sort of really early rock and roll sort of crooner from like the 50s. And um, he, after one concert on Christmas Eve night, um, he was challenged to a game of Russian roulette and played it and lost. <coughs> And the song he had recorded two nights before, the song called Pledging My Love, went to number one immediately. And he was sort of the first rock and roll casualty and the first sort of like, you know, it was his youth and his death was written into the lore of his music. And in fact, that song, Pledging My Love, which plays a really important part in the book, is considered to be a haunted and a cursed song. It was the very last song that Elvis Presley recorded. And there's several other people who covered it who like bad things have happened to them. Um, wow. <laughs> the Scottish song. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. It is. Pledging my love is like the, you know. Um, wow. But it's interesting that it, like this idea of danger in rock and roll goes back to like the days of Johnny Ace, and that's why, um, that's why I wanted side A of the book to be dedicated to him, because he's sort of the one that sort of sets, in some ways, sets this in motion. Yeah. Don't. <laughs> Well, you know, playing Russian roulette, not really the smartest. Uh... <laughs> but it's that whole feeling of heightened reality. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So I've read that uh, it's hard for musicians today, whether Amazon or whatever, to uh, have a clean path to commercial success. You can't just all sign with a record company anymore. And yeah. I think it's not. I think it's not about. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, I guess, I guess the argument I'd be making is that it's really more about how it's able to sort of affect the culture more than the energy of the music itself. Like, there's still lots of good music being made. I think it's like the impact it's able to have. Yeah, yeah. Right, right. Um, and even she's had to reinvent herself as a movie star. Um, but, but yeah, no, I mean, I know, I know what you're saying. I mean, 
there's a, I'm, I'm, I live in Charlotte, North Carolina now, and there's like a pretty interesting sort of underground scene, but it's, um, it's hard though when those bands like, like they're around for a couple of years and break up because it's just not, I don't know, there's just, there's no money in touring anymore. It's sort of like you see people, at least, at least at this uh, level, um, maybe it's different, probably different in LA, of, it, you know, it sort of becomes a hobby and there's something it's really only sort of the people who are real lifers who are sort of like really sticking to it. And I see so many people sort of pass through the scene that are really interesting, doing interesting work, and just sort of like pass out of it again. Well, I think that, you know, rock and roll is such a dream. And once you stop dreaming that intense, it's hard to keep up that intensity of a dream in, you know, if, if it, there's nowhere to go. You know, if we're just showing up in Charlie's living room, then we do it gig at the Bigfoot Tavern and then we're back in Charlie's living room. Yeah, yeah, right. You know, and you're getting to be you're twenty five, you're thirty five. Um, where where's that intensity uh, gonna come from um, that used to sustain people. You yeah, know? yeah. I mean, in terms of like the facts, sure. Um, in terms of, but in terms of creating art, in terms of creating something that, like you were saying, that people want to dream their way into. Um, I mean, I still think that's the, you know, that's the role of art. That's the news that William Carlos Williams said people die from every day, not being in the newspapers. And you can't help it. You know, if you're an artist, people say, you know, some people write specifically topical art. They try to deal with what is happening right now, and that goes onto the page. But a lot of artists, you know, are writing about um, kind of how they, you know, how life appears to them. But even that work is political. If you read it 10 years from now, if you read it 20 years from now, you see how the artist cannot help but express the times, whether they intended to do it or not. So you look at Kandinsky yeah. as a painter. He began um, abstraction in the 1910s. And you can see World War, II, World War I right there on the canvas. Well, this is you know, at least two years, three years before the war. But you could already see the war. Uh, brewing, you know, we can't help but pull it through because we live in time, we live in history, it affects us. So you felt this violence, and it's and myth and the myth, you know, these things coming together. I think you know it just comes through. How could it not? Yeah, I mean, I think too. I mean, to just back to your point, um, I think hopefully you could you know, disagree with a lot of what's in the book or some of the ideas that the characters are positing in the book and still hopefully the book still has a lot 
else that like makes it a satisfying read. Like it's not just the, like we're talking about some of like the more topical stuff because it's a little bit easier um, to talk about. But I mean, I think that's also the thing about art is that it's giving you, it's hopefully giving you something from a number of different angles that it's not um, the thing that may seem right in front of you may not be the thing that sticks with you um, from a given piece of literature or a given piece of music or whatever. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, yeah, this is like a deeply troubled, tumultuous time for sure. I mean, we're seeing changes happening in the culture that, you know, have that we've that we've never that we've and never I, seen before. And I think your style really reflects it. The style of this book, the short scenes, there's a real pace to it. You know that that I think reflects. You know, it has the feel of of the present. Yeah, I mean, I'm interested in like things being fragmented, like how to take fragments but still make them propulsive. How to take fragments and show that they're incomplete but still make them sort of sing and still make you feel like you're getting something from that fragmentation. I, mean, I think the fragmentation in the book is partly sort of the fragmentation of the culture, but it's also the fragmentation of the violence that happens. So like the book, most of it takes place in the small town of Arcadia after this sort of epidemic of violence. And it's these characters dealing with sort of the aftermath of this violence. And sort of, I think there's something about encountering this sort of violence that makes their lives feel shattered. That makes, one of the characters even says at one point that it's hard for him to think past the next couple of moments. And there's something about the book has trouble thinking past the next couple of moments. And I feel like in some ways we're all sort of like, living that now with like, you know, what the fuck is gonna be on the news like tomorrow that we're gonna have to like process and how are we gonna even, you know, how do we think past that? Like we're sort of in this sort of stunted attention span because there's only so much we can take in. And I think the book style is in some ways reflecting that. So I see that we're wrapping it up uh, and... Oh, I'll, I'll answer other questions too. Yeah. Like, private, you know, but we're come gonna, up and ask. <laughs> Thank you guys for coming. Thank you so much. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.